Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. This week, we're spending the show talking about the new Supreme Court term and the cases you should be watching. We'll be joined by former Acting Solicitor General Ian Gershengorn, who's now the chair of Jenner and Block's appellate practice. But up first, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So, still Kavanaugh in the news, guys. I think we should... Do a little yeah, quick a, update it, on where we are. It's it's still a Supreme Court theme show, but only partially Kavanaugh this week. But we're going to talk about substantive stuff later. We're just going to. I yeah. feel like it's been a lot of like the horse race aspect of the Kavanaugh story, which is obviously very important. But yeah. it's nice to do a whole show where we don't really get into that. But so, let's get into that for right now. <laughs> well, yes. just so our listeners know, we are recording this on Thursday afternoon. And the state of play right now is that a cloture vote on the nomination is set for Friday at Mm -hmm. 1 o'clock. And if you're not a Senate nerd, that's just a procedural vote that precedes the actual vote on Kavanaugh, which just kind of limits the debate. I was talking to Mike, who was on the show uh, last week, and he basically said under the timeline where we sit now, a procedural vote Friday, and then the earliest they could vote on Kavanaugh himself, the actual nomination is like Saturday evening. Now, it could be adjusted by a couple of hours, right? Um, but that's about where we're at now. The big the big hubbub this week was the, the FBI investigation that right. obviously pushed things back a week. Uh, seems to have wrapped up today. There is this confidential report that isn't being made public. Um, yeah, they all had know, to go. I don't know if you, you, you the saw the Rorschach test, like everything else. Yeah, you know, the like, the the report not released publicly was like in some basement room of the Senate. I did see that. And yeah, the, and the senators and the staff had to, it was like alternating shifts in an right. hour. The Republicans were allowed to see it for an hour, then the Democrats go for an hour. It had and in like, between, they were like running out to press conferences. It's like such a circus. Well, I mean, what we did see come out of that is um, maybe a little more clarity on where a few people stand. Yeah. Um, Jeff Flake, among others, uh, had praised the report for being thorough. Yeah. So that is a bit of an indication there. Yeah. Well. Well. The and the, like and Collins similarly like said the report was, you know, very, very detailed or whatever her statement was. Yeah. And the Democrats disagreed. They didn't interview Kavanaugh or Ford, uh, right. which was an interesting choice. I mean, we'll never read it, so I, I almost don't even want to tread into it. But that has been confirmed that they didn't. Um, Heidi Heitkamp, the Democrat from North Dakota was on the fence. She was like, is always kind of at the center of politically charged votes like this. She came out and said she'll be a no um, after reading the report. That's a no for me, dog. That's that's a no. (laughs) So we're only left with a few people that are truly up in the air. We're left with Collins that you mentioned. Uh um, Although, like you said, Collins said the report seemed thorough. We're left with um, the Democrat, Jim Manchin, from my home state of West Virginia, has not gone on the record about what he's going to (laughs) do, and Flake himself. And Murkowski, is Murkowski I think most people think Murkowski's a no. Okay. Well, so that's where we're at now. Uh, As we say, we're sort of teed up for a final vote on Saturday, unless something goes haywire, which can't be ruled out. Yeah, I mean, it does appear right at the second, as we're recording now, um, signs seem positive toward Kavanaugh being confirmed, but we don't know for sure. So if he gets there... With all this stuff still floating in the ether, he will have to listen to some cases. And I think it's important we talk about uh, what some of those cases are. Let's go to Ian. As we kick off a new Supreme Court term, we want to take a closer look at some of the big cases the justices will decide and the impacts those decisions may have. Joining us to share his insights is Ian Gershengorn, former acting solicitor general and currently chair of Jenner and Block's appellate and Supreme Court practice. 
Welcome back to the show, Ian. Thanks, Amber. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be back. Yeah, um, there's a lot to talk about, but this term um, isn't quite like the last time we had you on the show. The last term we had a bunch of blockbuster things lined up, Masterpiece Cake Shop, Travel Ban, Political Gerrymandering, and that was just a few of a really packed docket. Things are being described as a bit more snoozy this time around. Can you give us a little insight about why it might be different? Sure. Um, there's no doubt last term was a, a, an unusually busy and interesting one. Um, you know, so I think a couple things are probably at play. First, there's a natural ebb and flow in the court's docket. Um, and of course, still plenty of time for the court to add more interesting uh, and, and, and sort of front page cases. And, and that may well happen. Um, but I think there may also be a sense of the court exercising some caution when it's operating uh, in what is currently an eight-justice court with the retirement of Justice Kennedy. Um, We saw that after Justice Scalia passed away in the term that followed that, the court was operating with eight justices, and it was an unusually quiet term. And court watchers were wondering whether that was sort of happenstance or something that um, that the court itself brought about consciously. And what was very interesting was that both Justice Alito and Justice Kagan spoke publicly about that and talked about how uh, the court was very focused on making sure that the that people viewed the court as a functioning institution. It tried very much to avoid 4-4 opinions, I think, both in the cases that it took and in the opinions that it issued. Both Justice Kagan and Justice Alito talked about how the justices forced each other to continue engaging in conversations uh, and trying to reach consensus. And so there may be some of that happening now, um, but there's no doubt um, that something uh, is afoot. This year, for example, there were only five grants from the so-called Long Conference, where the court um, gets together and discusses all the petitions that have come in over the summer. In previous years, it's been more like eight to 12. And so uh, so it does seem like the court is cutting back, perhaps waiting to see what happens with uh, Justice Kennedy's successor. Well, Ian, it sounds like it's going to be a different term than last year, but we wanted to get into a few of the specific cases that the court has already agreed to hear and um, might be the big big rulings ahead. So the first case we wanted to hit on was uh, Gamble versus United States, which is a case about double jeopardy um, that hits on some really interesting issues and has gained some attention from court watchers who think it, it could maybe have an effect on, on President Trump and on Robert Mueller's ongoing special counsel investigation. Um, so at issue for the listener, at issue is, is a century-old doctrine called uh, the separate sovereignty exception. Um, the, the, the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause protects a person from being charged twice with the same crime, but this exception has always meant that state and federal prosecutors can, can charge people for the same crime. A guy named Terrence Gamble, uh, who was prosecuted for violating both state and federal gun laws, argued that this kind of prosecution amounted to double jeopardy, but a lower court rejected it under this separate sovereignty exception. So as I mentioned, the case, which was granted in June, has gotten attention for what it might mean for for President Trump if he starts pardoning associates who were swept up in Robert Mueller's investigation. You know, if those people can simply be tried under state law, um, the, the the pardons mean a whole, a whole lot less. So, Ian, what's the background for, you know, why this... We, I think all the listeners are, are fairly familiar with what double jeopardy is, but what's the background for why this doctrine, this exception to double jeopardy exists? 
So the background for it is the notion that uh, separate governments should be allowed to operate um, independently and not be prejudiced by the operation of other governments. So, for example, the idea is that if a state goes forward with a prosecution um, and, and gets an acquittal, or the state goes forward with a prosecution and imposes a very light penalty, that shouldn't prevent the federal government from doing what Congress wanted when it passed an independent criminal statute and prosecuting that person uh, for any crimes that occur. Right. And so what makes this kind of an interesting area is there really are there really is a tension between two um, fundamental instincts we have. One is that it really does seem to get at the core of what double jeopardy is about, to try the same person twice for the same crime, and particularly, for example, although it was not Mr. Gamble's case, but particularly if that person was acquitted, for example, yeah. in the state court system and then prosecuted in the federal system. That seems really to be wrong under right. double jeopardy. On the other hand, this notion that the states are independent sovereigns from the federal government is really deeply embedded in American jurisprudence. And the idea that a state prosecution could prevent the attorney general or a U.S. attorney from coming after a defendant that Congress thought should be punished when it passed a crime um, is one that seems wrong to a lot of people. And these, this is a case in which those two principles really conflict with each other. So this case gives the court a, a chance to change that long-established status quo. Can you tell us a bit more about that and why Gamble thinks it's time to actually change it? Sure. And uh, I think that Gamble is invoking uh, a, number of, uh, a number of ideas. The first is the one that I mentioned at the start. It really is that this goes to the core of what um, double jeopardy is really about, to allow two prosecutions. Second... He, appealing to the, to the court's originalist, uh, he points to a long history dating back to, uh, to England in the 1600s, where it seemed to be clear that, or he alleges it's clear, that a prosecution in France, for example, would not prevent uh, the England from bringing a, a similar prosecution. And so he invokes those cases. The third thing he says is that the double jeopardy, this separate sovereignty doctrine arose when there wasn't as much overlap between the two sovereigns in the United States, that federal criminal law up until relatively recently was, was a narrow area of law. Mm -hmm. That, of course, has changed over the decades as the number of federal crimes has exploded. And so the opportunities for multiple prosecutions um, have have uh, have really expanded. And so those are the kinds of arguments that Gamble is invoking in the court now. But now this would be a change, right, for the court. It would be going against its own its own precedent. Is there anything we can read for, you know, how this case might shake out in terms of the way that the court is is looking at, you know, looking at stare decisis? So uh, it's uh I think people are looking at this case and several others from the term as really a clue to how the uh, post-Justice Kennedy court will look at stare decisis. There are already um, at least three cases on the court's docket that are expressly asking the court to overrule prior precedent. There's this Gamble case. There's the Hyatt case, which involves the ability of a state to be sued in the courts of another state. And then there's the Nick case, which involves whether uh, you have to go to state court first to hear, have a takings claim heard. And those three cases, I think, are going to give us our first clues 
as to what the Roberts court is going to do when asked to overturn precedent. And of course, um, the departure of Justice Kennedy has raised the specter in the minds of, of, of many observers in the court that there will be more opportunities and more requests for the court to overturn um, what had previously been settled case law. Right. And so I think a case like Gamble will give us a glimpse at how the court is going to think about it. I mean, one interesting piece of this is that some of the liberal justices might be very sympathetic to a kind of a multiple prosecution concern of the kinds that Gamble raises. Those may also be the very justices who are going to be more hesitant to overturn precedent uh, too easily in the years to come. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So Bill alluded to this as he was sort of setting up the case, um, that this has gotten a lot of attention, especially from those watching the political implications. And that's the links that it could have to Trump and Mueller and pardons. Does that analysis make sense? Does that fit squarely on this case? So I think it, it it does, but it can be overstated. The um, the basic concern or the basic theory is that um, it, the, that President Trump, by pardoning somebody like uh, Mr. Manafort or Mr. Cohen, would uh, would save them from the consequences of the Mueller prosecution and might um, might give them incentive not to cooperate. The availability of a state court prosecution then provide some backstop uh, a number of observers have viewed because of the dual sovereignty doctrine, that a state could then prosecute someone like Manafort or someone like Cohen um, in the event of a pardon. The elimination of the dual sovereignty doctrine would upset that sort of basic expectation. I think it's possible to overstate that, though, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, a number of states, including New York, um, which is one of the states that are most, is most focused on um, with respect to the Mueller investigation, uh, the state of New York has its own, um, has overruled the dual sovereignty doctrine by statute, so that uh, New York state is, in fact, limited in its ability to prosecute in the wake of a federal crime, and that wouldn't be changed by, uh, by a ruling in Gamble. The other point that I'd make that sort of lessens the impact a little bit is that the dual sovereignty doctrine is limited uh, to only crimes that are the same. And so let me be very specific for, for a moment. A federal tax prosecution, a prosecution for federal tax fraud would not prevent under the Double Jeopardy Clause, a prosecution for state tax fraud. Right. Hmm. So even if they eliminated the dual sovereignty doctrine as a general matter, that wouldn't prevent a state such as New York or Maryland from prosecuting uh, for state tax fraud, even uh, if, right. if someone were pardoned for federal tax fraud. Uh, Ian, the next one I want to talk about is kind of a wonky uh, antitrust case that nevertheless uh, could have some serious implications, uh, especially for the emerging tech sector. Um, it's called Apple v. Pepper, and basically it's an antitrust case, as I said, that basically centers around this allegation that Apple has created essentially a monopoly for iPhone apps through the use of its own app store. It charges hefty commissions to developers to sell only on the app store. Now, we, you and the three of us and many people listening probably understand the basic core of antitrust. If you're restricting the channels of a sale, there's a chance that prices are going to go up and customers might be getting a raw deal. But what makes this case very interesting is that it's being brought by people who buy iPhone apps from the App Store. And there's a question about whether or not 
those customers are actually bearing the brunt of any non-competitive activity here. Um, Because as I said, it is developers who set the price of the apps, and they are charged a 30% commission by Apple to sell there. The district court that heard this case basically tossed out uh, the the app buyer's case. They said um, they don't really have a dog in the fight because they are not, in antitrust parlance, direct consumers. They have merely... Um, you know, sort of inherited the higher prices from this own arrangement between Apple and the developers. Uh, but they got a sa- they, they got a, a, a life preserver from, from the Ninth Circuit, which basically revived the case and said that Apple is really just acting as a distributor here. They are selling the apps directly to the customers and must therefore face antitrust claims. Now, um, you know, issues of standing can be, as I said, a little bit wonky. Some would even say boring. But basically, this is interesting because it's like, I am here and I purchased an app. You know, when is a customer not a customer? Why does it matter who can and cannot sue for antitrust damages? So it's a great question. And and so the issue in the case is, as you say, one of standing. And it dates back to a core part of antitrust standing doctrine, which is this direct purchaser doctrine. And the classic example of that is a situation in which you have a monopolist who sells to a middleman, who sells to the ultimate consumer, and then the ultimate consumer wants to sue. So, for example, in Illinois Brick, which is the seminal case on this, there was alleged to be a conspiracy to raise prices in the manufacture of concrete blocks. So those manufacturers were charging contractors more for the blocks, and then contractors were charging the state, which was purchasing services, more to build buildings. And the state sued the manufacturers of the blocks, and the court said, no, you can't do that. You're not the direct purchaser. The direct purchaser of the conspiracy is the contractor. The contractors can sue, but not the, not the state. And the reason for that was really twofold. Um, first, the, the court was worried about trying to figure out what it called pass-through damages. Mm-hmm. It was unclear, for example, whether, in fact, the contractors were charging more to the state to build the buildings, or whether the contractor was just eating the cost itself. Right. And then the second thing it was worried about was having multiple suits, that it would be double damages, essentially, if the mm-hmm. state could sue and then the contractors could sue. So the question is, how do you apply that to these high-tech yeah. sort of platform models? And we have two very different answers. So Apple comes in and says, this is just like the, the concrete blocks. We, what we're doing is, um, at worst, we're being, we're, we are overcharging the developers of the apps, the right. people who are doing the programming, and then passing on that co- higher cost to the consumers. But we're, you, we're not being alleged to ha- be monopolizing the app market. Yeah. We're only ma- uh, monopolizing the distribution market. And so the concerns that the court identified in Il- Illinois Brick about what's being passed on and the possibility of double recovery, mm-hmm. you know, if both the app buyer, you and me, sue, and the app developer sue, those same concerns resonate if you listen to Apple and to the United States, which came in on the yeah. side yes. of yeah. uh, Apple. So in this one, Ian, it's um, you know it's one thing when people are thinking about the market for bricks in the world, but the market right. for apps is enormous. So can we get into a little bit of the implications of what could happen sure. here, especially if they don't buy Apple's arguments? I just love the symmetry of the idea that this like new and emerging technology case. Uh, will turn on something that's literally about brick and mortar sales. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the main 
the main cases are about shoemaking and concrete blocks. Right. Right. Very right. far from as yeah, you can get. Yeah, but to Amber's so the, point, it's I, got big e-commerce. Uh, uh, exactly, and Amber, you're exactly right. I mean, the the kinds of uh, a good signal about the importance of the case is the kinds of amicus briefs you get, and the amicus briefs are coming in, and they're raising all sorts of concerns about so-called um, platform providers. So these are like travel sites, you know, like Expedia yep. or restaurant reservation sites like Open Table or DoorDash or StubHub. These are the kinds of, of platforms where you have uh, where the, the point, the service being provided is the ability to take consumers like you and me and put us in touch with service providers like ticket sellers or restaurants or something like that. And in the internet and age, the, that's ubiquitous at this point. Yeah. That is ubiquitous. And what those companies are saying is, if you don't rule for Apple, if you rule against Apple, you're going to stifle those kinds of products from being brought to market because there'll be a fear of this kind of double damage that will be sued by by both the restaurants and by the people, the diners. And that kind of expansion of antitrust liability, particularly when antitrust liability has treble damages and thus can be quite yeah. extensive, um, is causing a lot of heartburn um, you know, in Silicon Valley and indeed throughout the e-commerce market. And that, I think, is really what's at stake here. It is how is the court going to apply sort of core antitrust principles developed in the concrete block market and <laughs> apply them to sites like travel sites and restaurant sites and, and ticket sellers and eBay and places like that. And so it'll be very interesting to see uh, where the court goes with that. Ian, I want to turn us now to discuss a case that has maybe flown a bit under the radar. And it's another one that could have big impacts, but this time on federal regulations themselves. Uh, the one I want to talk about is called Gundy versus United States. It's a suit filed by a man named Herman Gundy, who was accused of violating a federal law that requires convicted sex offenders to sign up for a nationwide registry. But the implications of the case go way beyond offender registries. It could give the high court a chance to revive a long, dormant legal doctrine that could keep Congress from delegating authority to the executive branch. And practically, that means that it could impact everything from labor laws to environmental regulations. Can you tell us a bit more about this case that on the face of it's just about one person violating a sex offender registry law, but could have these broad impacts on rulemaking. Sure. So the case itself involves uh, the SORNA, which is a federal statute that requires sex offenders to register uh, when they travel from state to state. And the question uh, came up um, about whether to apply this new statute, which Congress passed in the mid-2000s, and whether it should apply to sex crimes that were committed before the statute was passed. And there was a lot of debate on that in Congress, and Congress couldn't come up with an answer to that. And so it punted to the attorney general. And so the statute itself says the attorney general shall have authority to decide whether this statute is applicable to people who committed their crimes before the date of this statute. And the attorney general and attorneys general since have, have uh, provided to one degree or another that indeed the statute was retroactive. And Mr. Gundy was one of the, the people who had committed a sex crime prior to the enactment of the statute. So why that is so troubling to many is, um, is a number of things. First of all, it implicates what you've described as this non-delegation doctrine. And the non-delegation doctrine says, look, it's Congress's job to pass laws. It's Congress's job to make rules that are generally applicable and that govern the conduct of you or me. That's not the job of the executive branch. The executive branch is supposed to execute what Congress passes. 
And the argument goes, it's particularly pernicious when you're delegating authority to a prosecutor, because then the prosecutor, the attorney general here, gets to not only prosecute you, but set the rule under which you'll be prosecuted. And that concentrates a lot of power in one person. Now, you know, as you noted, this non-delegation doctrine hasn't been invoked successfully for about 80 years. The 1930s was the last time um, it succeeded, and it's only succeeded twice in our history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be reviving a doctrine um, that, that could have very broad consequences. Um, you know, I'd like to, just a couple of points on that. You know, it's, it's part of a collection of doctrines that a number of members on the court, and Justice Gorsuch, for example, in particular, have been concerned about um, because they give too much power to the executive branch, power that they think should be with Congress. And so doctrines like void for vagueness and Chevron, which is about the amount of deference that courts give to agencies, and then this non-delegation doctrine, they're all of a piece. They're all based on the view that Congress needs to make the hard policy calls. That's not for the executive branch to do. And Justice Gorsuch last term um, in the DeMaia case, which was a case in which he joined with the four liberal, more liberal justices on a, a void for vagueness case, started out his opinion saying, vague laws invite arbitrary power. Right. And those five words, I think, really sum up for somebody like Justice Gorsuch the kind of concerns um, that you would have with a statute like this, and that he articulated an oral argument the other day. He was very much troubled by the idea that you would concentrate both the lawmaking power and the prosecutorial power in the hands of one, uh, one agency, the, here the Attorney General, and take away from Congress the kind of, of powers that it would have. The flip side of that, of course, is, is, are the points that Justice Breyer made at argument, which is there are a lot, a lot, a lot of very broad delegations from Congress to agencies in a whole variety of areas. Yeah, yeah so that's federal- kind of what I brought up, too, that I was a little worried about. Uh, I think many people are a little worried about how this case could just impact so many things. Absolutely. And so when you look at some of the things that were discussed, for example, in the briefs, the FCC has authority to regulate broadcast licensors in the public interest, convenience and necessity. The Federal Power Commission has authority to set just and reasonable rates. The EPA regulates air quality to protect public health. Those are the kinds of very, very broad standards that the the federal government, the Solicitor General, brought up in the briefing and at argument to show and and uh, to caution the court about a broad ruling here because a broad ruling on non-delegation and a, a a serious invigoration of that doctrine could in theory call into questions those kinds of of delegations and those are the kinds of discussions the court was having um, has congress given in this statute the kind of intelligible principle that the court has demanded that would guide agency discretion. If you rule for the defendant here, are you opening up challenges to the FCC, the the Federal Power Commission, the EPA, and places like that? And then how does all of this fit into a broader framework about concern about too much power being delegated from Congress to the executive branch in doctrines like Chevron, doctrines like void for vagueness, and doctrines like non-delegation. And that is certainly 
um, at least uh, and we will see depending on who gets confirmed for the ninth spot, but it is certainly a doctrine, a series of doctrines that I would expect to be very much front and center at the court um, in, the, in the years to come. But now, Ian, you mentioned the sort of distinction here of, you know, the idea of the doctrine in the context of, a, of, of criminal law um, when it comes to delegating authority to a prosecutor. Is there a way that the court could sort of, you know, use that distinction to, to maybe do a, maybe make a sort of a narrower ruling that, that, you know, that this doctrine makes sense in the context of, of not giving this kind of authority in for, for criminal prosecutions, but, but would allow, would avoid sort of that sweeping ruling that we were talking about that would strike down environmental regulations and labor laws and everything else. Yeah, it would be really something to watch the conservative wing of the court line up against reigning the government in beyond, behind like a sex offender case. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, right. but, but that's basically what we're asking. And I think the answer to that is yes, that the court um, certainly could and perhaps even would if it went um, in favor of Mr. Gundy, write an opinion that was that was narrow in the, exactly the way you described, that would say, look, there are whatever we think about non-delegation generally, there are particular concerns when you're talking about concentrating criminal enforcement power um, in one place. I just make two comments about that. One is... I, you know, the court's precedent then goes in unexpected ways, or maybe even expected ways here. And I, I think what that would be doing would be teeing up the, um, you know, the next set of cases which are likely to come in any event if the court goes down that path. So even if this case is narrow, I think the seeds would be planted for broader yeah. challenges. The other thing I would say that came up at argument is that the lines between criminal and and sort of more regulatory are are blurrier than perhaps one might think at the start because a lot of times these um, general regulations that agencies issue are enforced by criminal sanctions. And so, although it's not as stark as it is in this case, where you have the AG actually setting forth, here is the statute, and if you violate it, you will be subject to prosecution. Um, But there are criminal penalties that come from a lot of these, from disobeying some of these civil regulations. And so the line may not be as sharp um, as one would think in practice. And again, that was discussed a lot at the argument earlier this week. So, Ian, we've outlined some of the interesting cases so far, but as we said up top when we set up the talking with you, some of the more interesting and exciting things may be what the court decides to take up later in the term. Can you give us some quick hits about what you're keeping your eye on? Sure. I, the uh, A pair of cases, I think, has caught the my attention and, and the attention of many court um, observers, and that is how you apply Title VII in the context of sexual orientation and transgender. There are a couple of cases bringing that issue to the court. There's a case called Altitude Express and another one called RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes that raise uh, those questions. So Altitude Express involves sexual orientation discrimination. The court had that on for conference and has rescheduled it for later in the term, and the, the assumption is they wanted to consider that question in conjunction with Harris, and Harris Funeral Homes is one that raises um, Title VII as applied to transgender individuals. And so those two cases are ones that have divided the lower courts, that raise important statutory and policy questions, and that uh, would be uh, reasonable ones for the court to grant. Mm -hmm. Um, We won't find out about that until probably around December. I think it's set up for a conference um, in November. And so that's certainly one that I'm keeping my eye on. Another case that is uh, that's headed up is 
um, a question about whether display of a monument consisting of a large cross violates the First Amendment. That's a, uh, an issue the court has dealt with a number of times right. over the years and continues to divide the court. There's a case called American Legion versus American Humanist Association. And that's another issue that I would expect would at least get the courts, uh, uh, get a serious look from the court. Looks like we have some exciting ones to keep our eyes on there, Ian. And thank you so much for explaining all the things to watch this term. It's been great talking to you. So it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was a great show today, guys. I feel like I learned a lot about the cases we should be watching. Yep. Substantive. Non-Kavanaugh. <laughs> it was a nice, refreshing change of some, pace Some for people us. say that the docket is boring. I just call it modest. And I'm a, and I'm a fan of a modest docket. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Val. <laughs> See you next week, guys. I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guest this week, Ian Gershengorn. And our contributing reporters, Jimmy Hoover, Matthew Perlman, and Aaron Coe. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And if you want to know more about any of the Supreme Court cases we're tracking, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher, and please leave us a review. Thanks, and join us again next week.